Our message, my message today is entitled Making Straight Paths. It goes along with the, a reading um, for our Advent reading. John the Baptist burst onto the scene to get people ready for the coming of the Lord. Luke chapter 3, verses 3 and 4 says, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. You see, when John the Baptist first came as the forerunner of Jesus Christ, he had one mission and one message. It was to prepare the way of the Lord and to make straight paths for Him. What does that mean? I know we say it each year, but what does that mean to make make straight paths for the Lord? And what is the what was the essence of His message? I'll tell you. The answer is repentance. The way to make straight straight paths for Jesus to come into our lives and into our hearts is to get all the junk out of the way. Period. That is repentance. But because hearts were so hardened and lives were so compromised, this was more than just a message. It was a heart's cry to repent and to return to God. See, repentance is not something that you just wade into or try out for a while as if you're test driving a new car. Repentance is serious business. And it's precipitated by groans of anguish, understanding that your sin has separated you from God. And although many have say that they have repented or that they repent, God is wise. He knows the difference between true repentance and false repentance. So we're only cheating ourselves if we're not being honest with God in our repentance. Worldly guilt only produces man's emotional response or the feeling of getting caught. This false repentance is temporary and only usually lasts long enough for the feeling of guilt to subside. Once the person convinces himself that he has felt bad enough and apologized, the repentance stops, even though no real change has taken place. There's no staying power to change and to continue to seek after God. Yet godly repentance is different. It's a response from a soul in anguish that realizes that he or she, what they've done to God, that they've caused a separation between themselves and God. A true repentant heart understands that the choice to willfully sin has separated the believer from God and has affected and altered his most precious of all relationships. You know what we're going through right now so much has impacted our relationships by not being able to see each other and hug each other and, and handshake and all stuff. And so it, we're reminded of our most important of all relationships, and that's with God. You see, without the anguish of soul, and the voice crying as one lost in the wilderness of sin and guilt and shame. There is no repentance to make straight paths for God. Luke 3, verses 5 and 6. Every valley should be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The ups and downs of our faith walk, the inconsistency, the hypocrisy, the things we do before others and the things we do or think about when no one is around, these are what must be repented of to prepare the way for God. 
Now at the same time, understand that repentance does not mean that we completely change our actions or stop these behaviors on our own. Repentance means that we want to stop or that we will do whatever it takes to make our, to make straight paths for God to come into our hearts and in our lives to rescue us. When we come to Jesus along with our willingness and our desperation, He comes to us and alongside of us to make crooked pathways straight and to make rough ways smooth. He gives us the power to overcome. We cannot overcome on our own. We cannot just will ourselves to do it. It takes a supernatural response of God coming together with our willingness to do so. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 12. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has, and not according to what he does not have. Maybe you've heard me say this before, but this is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Because God is saying it doesn't matter what you have. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how long you've been doing it. It doesn't even matter if you don't even know what you're doing. God says, if you're willing to change, if you're willing to trust me, I accept your willingness. I don't look at what you're doing wrong. I look at your willingness and I take that and I work with that. That's a God of grace. That no matter what we have done, He is willing to come alongside of us and work with us. We need to be willing to trust God to bring about changes in our lives. Are we willing to submit to Him and receive His perspective and His way to live our lives so that He may be glorified, so that He gets the credit? Are we willing to believe that all things are possible with God? That's what God asks us to do. That's why we have the body of Christ to come alongside one another and to help us continue to believe. If we bring Him our willingness first, God accepts this. He looks at what we have, our willingness, and gives more weight to our willingness than anything else. It's the devil that tells you that you need to give more weight to your sin or to your guilt or to your shame. God says, don't listen to them. Listen to me. God accepts your willingness if you are truly seeking Him with all your heart. Since repentance is an act of the heart, God looks to see if our hearts are willing to change. Our willingness... Our willingness makes straight paths to God to come to our rescue. Think about it this way. There's a couple boys messing around in the woods. Goofing around, one of them trips over and breaks his leg. He cannot move. There's no way for an ambulance or a helicopter to get back into the middle of the woods to rescue him, to bring him to a hospital where he can receive help. It's a seemingly impossible situation. What are they to do? They cry out for help but there's no response. They understand immediately that they must put themselves in a better place to be rescued. They must make a willing effort to get themselves out of their current situation. This willingness is transformed into hope as the friend goes and finds a couple sturdy sticks and uses his shoelaces to make craft together a makeshift brace so the boy can straighten his leg. This rustic but effective stability allows the boy to start to hobble a little further out of the woods where they are soon heard and found by a passerby who radios for help. You see, the situation required trust that someone would come to the rescue. But it began with their willingness to move out of their complaining and hopeless stage and put themselves in a place to be helped. We too must move out of the hopeless and complaining stage that things are never going to change. I know when we've been in dry seasons and the enemy tells us it's never going to get any better, 
no one's listening, no one cares. God doesn't even hear you. That's what the enemy tells you. But we need to push past that and believe God instead of what the enemy is trying to tell us. When we turn to Jesus, He gives us hope to stand. He stabilizes us. No matter how desperate our situation is, God will come alongside and make a way where there seems to be no way if we trust Him to make straight paths for Him. In order to do this, we must repent. We repent not only for our sins and actions that may have gotten us into our current situation, but we also confess that we may have given up hope and have turned to complaining and despair instead of turning to Jesus and faith. The problem is that many times when we are struggling, we may feel, you know, I don't need to repent because I didn't sin or I didn't do something to cause what's going on right now in this situation. Somebody else did this to me. That's the kind of thoughts that we can have that prevent us from repenting. However, in almost all situations like this, at some point, we've given up hope at some level that God can take care of our needs. Therefore, we need to repent by for breaking our trust and losing our hope and not standing in faith. Our choice to turn from our woes and turn to Jesus is our first step of willingness. This is when Jesus comes alongside of us and splints our legs so we can stand. Everything is not fixed right away, but He supernaturally gives us hope, allowing us to stand and begin to move one step at a time. As we trust Him and the support that He gives, eventually we come to a clearing where we move to the next phase of our rescue. But we have to be willing to trust Jesus and move towards Him where there seems to be no way. Sometimes we need to close our eyes and just trust and not block out all the sounds around us and push and just focus on Jesus. Repentance causes us to begin the trust process so that every mountain of pride will be brought low. Every valley of doubt and fear will be filled. Every crooked place of sin and destruction will be stabilized and straightened. Every rough way of pain and hopelessness will be made smooth. This is what happens when we repent and come to Jesus. Not with any excuses other than to say, God, I trust you. Our willingness to repent and begin trusting Jesus in the middle of whatever problem we find ourselves in is how we prepare the way for the Lord. You see, preparing the way for the Lord on the Christmas season is not just about, it's not about the decorations. That's all beautiful and that kind of gets our hearts ready. But it's really a story of repentance. What can I do to make the ways smooth and straight for the Lord? Our willingness prepares us to clear the way so that Jesus can come to our rescue. It's the only way that we shall see salvation for what it is. God's saving hope for all mankind who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet if we are not willing and refuse to repent, we do not make straight paths for Him. This happens because we refuse to be humbled and refuse to acknowledge that we are in error and off the mark. As a result, out of love from God, not hatred, God has to respond sometimes by stripping things away from us so that we can see a straight path to His salvation. It is this stripping away process, this breaking down of all things around us that either brings us closer to God and solidifies our determination or we realize that we want nothing to do with Him. Either way, God brings out what is already in our hearts. 
If we truly are seeking God, our quest has been buried in pain and confusion and fear and doubt so that the seeking is not so obvious. So God has a remedy for that. He strips away things in our life so that our only choice is to trust Him to come to our rescue. When we realize that we are in an impossible situation and that He is the God of impossibilities, that He revives the desires of our hearts to connect with Him, then we continue to trust Him. Yet if our main desire is to be comfortable or to achieve success, a greater reputation or wealth or fame, we will begin to treat this stripping away as something that needs to be resisted rather than embraced. We will blame others instead of taking on personal responsibilities for our actions that have allowed us to wind up in this situation or to stay lost in it. In the end, there will be no connection to God and therefore no real hope. When you feel that conviction of God in your heart and you know it's from God, don't resist it. All God's saying is, will you humbly come to me and admit it and confess so that I can stabilize you and bring you closer. How you respond to the stripping away will determine the strength and the authenticity of your connection to God. If you want to know if your relationship with God is real, then allow Him to prove it to you during a dry time in life. You see, throughout history, God has used the dry times in life to give people the chance to either turn to Him for help and healing and hope, or to turn to the world and place their trust with the world and receive those results. Some respond out of a heart of humility and trust, while others are only led by their own selfish pride, refusing any attempt of the Lord to make a straight path to them. Well, there's one such person in the story, in the Bible, that refused all attempts from God. King Ahab. Ahab was a man who rose up as king over Israel and did evil in the sight of the Lord. In Israel's history, there were, was a time when the kingdom was divided into Judah and Israel. During this time, there were some good kings and some bad kings. But Ahab was one of the worst kings of all. I'm going to pick up the story in the first Kings, chapter 16, verse 31. It says, And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. These events, I want to tell you, are so reflective of today's world. If, all, if, if you've not taken time to read the, 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 the entirety of the Bible and the Old Testament, then you've missed out how God is, is many times mirroring what's going on in the world today. Too many people today talk and act as if it's trivial or no big deal to walk in the sins of the world, just as Ahab was. It was trivial to walk in the, in the sins of the world. See, society is not just slipping today, as you know. It's already fallen on its face with little desire to get back up. In the same way, Ahab was not bothered at all by his embrace of sin. Ahab served one God. Himself, the same God that many people in society today serve. He did what was pleasing in his own eyes and neglected to follow the ways of his forefathers. He continued to defy God in how he lived and how he ruled Israel. To make matters worse, he married a very rebellious woman named Jezebel. 
as the two of them led the entire country astray and further away from the one true God. Ahab refused to repent and was not open to anyone telling him he was wrong. His wife Jezebel had sent orders to kill anyone who spoke against them. Ahab refused to listen to any prophetic word about his leadership and his lifestyle. 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 32. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the other kings of Israel who were before him. Worshiping idols and false gods angered the Lord over the direction of Israel under Ahab and Jezebel. Israel was God's chosen people, yet they had forgotten Him and sought all other immediate pleasures to gratify their flesh. Therefore, God had to get their attention because of their sin. So therefore, He called upon a prophet, as you know, a prophet named Elijah who was more concerned with the commands from the Lord than with the commands of his earthly king. Chapter 17, verse 1 of 1 Kings. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor any rain these years except at my word. What happens here is monumental. And that this action would divide the God-fearing people from the man-fearing people. A divide we see happening today where many people are more afraid of a man than more than they are afraid of God. Elijah prophetically declared that there would be no rain on the land for a period of time that would last three years. This drought was God's response to blatant and unrestrained sin, worshiping of idols, following after false gods, and demonstrating no guilt or remorse by it. In other words, Ahab's own actions brought a reaction from God. And the consistent message of God has always been to strip away the necessary things out of the way, not to punish us, but to make straight paths to Him, so that all who wanted to see the salvation of God could do so. There's no greater way to sort out the hearts of man than to let them experience hard times. God doesn't cause the bad things in your life, but sometimes He allows them so that we see our need and dependency for Him. Either we will search our own souls and repent and come to God, allowing Him to change our attitudes and our actions, or we will blame everyone else for what is happening and refuse to take any responsibility. Those who refuse to repent treat God's reaction like it's an initial action of the enemy that needs to be rebuked and resisted. Yet God will not be mocked. He will continue to put the pressure on until we either cry out to Him or seal our fate by putting all of our trust in ourselves and in our pride. Ahab brought all these consequences on himself, but wanted to blame Elijah. When people do not put God first, when they become slaves to their own pride, when they refuse to repent or be corrected or be humbled, they always resort to blaming others. It's got to be someone's fault. It's certainly not mine. It's got to be someone else's fault. And so we start to bring false accusations against others. In fact, a little later in the next chapter, Elijah comes face to face with Ahab. And we witness how an unrepentant Ahab responds to him. Chapter 18, verse 17. 
Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Verse 18, And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. You see, fortunately, Elijah, because he sought God and God's discernment, he saw things differently. He understood why God absolutely needed to bring the drought. God removed the rain, the very blessing that people had taken for granted, in order to teach obedience and trust and dependence on Him alone. This is how Elijah responded as he grew close to God and stayed completely dependent on Him for His daily sustenance and His daily direction. For those of you who have been through a drought where things all around you seem to dry up, and where you truly learn that the only way to survive is to rely completely on God's provision through His Word and by His Spirit, you know the absolute necessity of a drought ordained by God. I'll tell you right now that my family is going through a difficult time as well. And I know many families are as we go through the COVID and all the things that happen. And it's in times like these where we want to complain or we want to blame. That's our flesh's response. But we need to continue to trust God. And we need the body of Christ to come alongside of us and encourage us to continue to trust God. Amen? A drought is never easy to survive. But it's the only way that a flesh can be brought back into submission so that we learn to reconnect and reestablish our relationship with God. Though a drought or a dry time in life, we choose to hunger and thirst after God and His presence. And instead, instead of seeking after the world. It is through the droughts in our lives that we realize how much we really need God. This is the identifying factor in true repentance as well. We don't just feel bad because we were convicted by God. In repentance, we feel the anguish because we realize that we blew it, that we broke the relationship with God, and that we desperately need Him now more than ever. During dry times, we learn that our desperation must be for God and for God alone. Why we talk about repentance is because today is our Communion Sunday. And we're preparing our hearts not just for the Christmas season, but we're preparing our hearts to come to God as well. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 2 and 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. See, because Elijah was seeking after God, he obeyed him by going down to dwell at the brook. Elijah didn't stop to ask why or how long he has to stay there. He learned to obey God without questioning, to trust without second-guessing, or trying to figure things out that, that only made sense to him. How about you? Do you more often than not pass, the, pass or fail the Elijah test? When God promises to sustain you, not with everything you desire, but with everything that you need from His perspective, do you trust Him and obey without hesitation? Or do you resist because it doesn't make sense to you? 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 4. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. In the natural, this made no sense to Elijah. He would not, he would, he would go down to the brook and not look for food, but God would bring him the food. But even more than that, God was going to command the ravens to bring Elijah food at the brook. 
Not only did this seem preposterous, it was the exact opposite of a raven's nature. Ravens are known to trick other animals out of their food. Ravens have been researched and found that they actually mimic the cries of other animals. They steal eggs out of other animals' nests. And many, they, they steal food of other animals. They've never been known to help others out. That's the raven. All the more reason to believe this command from God would never work. If we stop in our own, in our own sense and try to understand it in our natural sense, we would reject these things. But God has to bring a way that we can't explain it other, any other way other than that God is going to provide for us. Elijah did not rest on his own understanding. The way to survive a drought is to begin by trusting God and following simple steps one step at a time, allowing God to transform your thinking, your actions, and your faith. Verse 5, So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. As Elijah trusted God, he was taken care of in the most amazing way. And the biggest thing was that it was not just a one-time event or one-time leap of faith. Every morning and every evening, Elijah had to wait on the Lord that God would indeed give him his sustenance. Understand this. Elijah wasn't trusting that the raven would return. He was trusting that God would provide for him. It's not your, it's not how it's coming to you. It's believing that God is your source, that He's going to provide for you, whether it be financial, whether it be health, whether it be companionship and fellowship. We believe that God is going to meet our needs as we put our trust in Him. At the brook, Elijah learned to become completely and daily dependent upon the Lord to sustain him. It's the place that we all need to get to, to become daily dependent on God. He's calling all of us to be there, to let go of our dependence of technology and hold on to our dependence of God. God will be there for us if we seek Him with all of our hearts. He's shouting to us to get away from the broad way that leads to destruction. And He's calling us to come back to the brook where He can sustain us and teach us dependence on Him alone and cause us to live by real faith, which we need during these times. If you search your heart, you will hear His call. God is convicting all of us to let go of the things that are demanding our time, consuming our attention, and lulling us into a false comfort that we are no longer hunger for God and for His holiness. I'm going to ask you right now just to take a brief moment and you will hear Him calling you to the brook, calling you to come closer and depend only upon Him. First Kings 17, verse 7. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. This is a crucial lesson that we must all learn at the brook. Eventually the brook will dry up and the raven will not return. Elijah didn't complain, nor did he try to take matters into his own hands by rebuking the brook or trying to command water to come out of the ground. You see, Elijah was not dependent upon the brook. He was not dependent upon the method. He was dependent upon God. If the brook dried up, that simply meant that God would provide another way. So as God moved, Elijah moved with him. What a lesson this is to us. When we are trusting Him and things dry up, God wants us to move with Him.
Unfortunately, many of us get too dependent upon the means and too dependent upon the method. Or we get too dependent on those to whom God is using to bless us. And when this happens, we lose our discernment and we become resistant to change, resistant to following God by faith. And we find ourselves stuck in the mud when God's trying to say, Go, go, I'm leading you, but you have to trust me. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. We are to seek God first and His kingdom and His righteousness and His presence. We can't afford to get tied up in tradition or our ways of doing things. A relationship with our living God is never static. It means it doesn't always stand still. It's always moving. Because He has continued to set things in motion to bring about His kingdom in the earth. Therefore, we must be willing to seek Him wherever He goes, wherever He leads us to. And wherever He calls us to dwell, that's how we ended up here. We lived in the Bay City area our whole life and God opened a door and it was very different for us. But we trusted them and we were blessed beyond our imagination of the wonderful people in the area and a beautiful church. It's very difficult sometimes to trust God when He closes doors in one area, but He always opens another somewhere else. If you were to be honest right now, how have you responded publicly and privately? in your own thoughts and attitudes to the changes of God that He has allowed to happen in your life? Are you able to accept change without complaining, without crying foul, and without doubting God in the process? Are you able to become more dependent upon God even if the method, the means, and your whole way of doing things has changed? Think about the number of people in the body of Christ that have changed coming to church each week and they're watching it right now online. They're still seeking God. They're still believing God. They're still, they're still being held together by our prayers in the body of Christ. Even though the method has changed, our hunger should not change because God's love and pursuance of us has not changed at all. We must be like Elijah, becoming daily dependent upon God and not on the brook. We must have a thankful appreciation for every blessing from Him, seeing that every bit of sustenance by His hand it comes from His hand. It should never be taken for granted. We must have that true faith that our daily feedings are not automatic. We're not entitled to the blessings, but as we seek God, God is faithful to take care of our needs. This, after all, is how Jesus taught us how to pray. We pray this each week. Matthew 6.11 Give us this day our daily bread. This is not just part of a rote prayer we say. It's part of our heart's desire that we believe. Do you understand our responsibility in this part of the Lord's Prayer? We must believe that God personally is delivering His Word to us. Just like Elijah waited for personally to God allow the raven to bring food to him, God is personally going to give His Word to us, what we need to make it through the day. We need to make the effort, therefore, to receive His Word. Listen, if money were falling from the sky we would all bring buckets and go stand out in the street to receive all the money that we could catch. However, as God promises to, d- to deliver us our daily bread, too many people do nothing to prepare for it. Just as Elijah prepared himself to receive from the ravens every morning and every evening, we too must prepare ourselves to receive our daily bread. We must go to God in prayer every day. We must go to God in reading the Word and hearing the Word every day. 
If God promises to give us this daily bread, then that's where we receive that from God. For our every unique situation that we have, we must become daily dependent upon the Lord. When we're open to God to speak to us and lead us in any way He sees fit, we don't get too comfortable at the brook or too dependent upon the ravens or the method or the means. Instead, we expect that God will give us something new every day. We ask God for His our daily bread. He's not going to give us day-old bread. He's going to give us fresh bread that we need each and every day because He knows what we need if we will only cry out to Him and be ready to receive it from Him. Because Elijah was seeking God and not the water at the brook, he was able to hear the still, small voice of God when he came to him. Verse 8 and 9. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have now commanded a widow to provide for you. Because God was providing for Elijah, it mattered not the method or the person he would use. God would be faithful to continue to provide for Elijah as Elijah sought him. This is what Elijah learned during the drought. This is what we all need to learn during the droughts and dry times in our lives. We must be quick to listen and quick to go if God moves. Verse 10, So he arose and went to Zarephath. If you know the story of Elijah, this would be the beginning of all the miracles that God would perform through the obedience of Elijah. And so much is made of these miracles from the jar of oil not running dry or the bin of flour not being used up or the raising of the widow's son from the dead and ultimately to the falling of the holy fire on top of Mount Carmel. These miracles usually get all the headlines for they are uplifting and encouraging to those who are seeking God to move in similar ways in their lives. But we must understand that our faith does not begin on a mountain. It is forged daily in the valleys and during the droughts, and by the brook where God is called to meet Him daily. As we look at these dirt, these dry times right now in our lives with the, all the attention of COVID and all the stuff that's going on, God has said to come to the brook, to come to the living Word of God, to pray to Him, to seek Him in prayer, to, to glean what we can out of His Word. And as we do that, God promises to give us our daily bread. And as we do that, God says, I'm calling you to make all your ways to me straight. We need to prepare our hearts in the valleys of life to, to be convicted of whatever is in the way so that we can make straight, pay, straight ways for the Lord. It's our job, job to trust Him, to receive our daily bread. So as we prepare for our communion right now, I'm going to ask you to take some time, just a moment, to prepare your hearts, whatever's in the way, as we're going through very difficult times, all of us are going through difficult times. All of us know people are going through difficult times. But right now, it's our responsibility to make straight paths for, the God, for God. We're not calling you to get up on the mic or to denounce it on social media. But between you and God right now, whatever has gotten in the way, if you've lost hope, if you've lost faith, if you've complained, if you've doubted, if you've sinned against your fellow brother or sister, don't dwell on it. Just give it to God. God's going to take it out of the way to make a straight path for Him. So as we reflect on this song of reflection right now uh, called Your Name, let's just take a moment and reflect and make a straight path for God. And as God brings something to your mind, just confess it to God and let it go to make straight paths for Him.